0: John chapter 3 is where we are. We're going to be reading verses 22 to 30. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you, speaking of Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be. To God. Well, um, the motto this week for um, our missions team has developed for our missions emphasis week is a heart for the harvest, which is an image of a field, right, that has been cultivated and planted, and now the crops are ready to be harvested. This is an image taken from Jesus himself who, who said this, pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up laborers, But in order to be someone who has a heart for the harvest, a cultivating work must be done in you first. In other words, in order for you to have a heart for the harvest, the field of your heart must have its clots of pride, its roots of self-centeredness, and its weeds of cheap joys tilled out. For John the Baptist... What well, we see in this passage is that he reveals that a heart that longs to see the harvest, to participate in the harvest, is a heart that has been humbled and has been gotten brought low. In this passage John the Baptist's disciples, just to give you some context here, in those first couple of verses what's happening is John the Baptist's disciples see that all many of John's followers are no longer following him but have now gone to follow Jesus. And they're concerned about this. And in the midst of this conversation about purification, we're not really entirely sure what that's about. But for some reason, out of that conversation comes this agitation for these disciples of John to go to to, to John and say, John, what's the deal? Everybody's abandoning you, and they're now following that guy that you pointed to at the Jordan. And what is John's response? He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. I want you to understand this. This is the key point. If you don't get anything else this morning, here's the main thing I want to drive home this morning. That a heart for the harvest is a heart that is willing to become nothing. To become less. In other words, a heart that is for the harvest is a heart that is humble and quieted and brought low. St. Augustine, when asked about the three great virtues of the Christian life, had this to say. The great virtues of the Christian life is humility, humility, humility. The definition of humility, there's many ways one can define it. But one way is by the Roman Catholic and medieval um, mystic Bernard of Clairvaux who said this. Humility is that virtue by which a man recognizes his own unworthiness because he has actually come to know himself. But the idea of humility in our day is anathema to us. Think about, you see, humility is not even necessarily just considered old-fashioned. It's considered to be unhealthy. We are about, what? Self-esteem and self-actualization and self-care. It's about preserving and highlighting who? The self. But if life is about the self, then it can no longer be about the mission because the mission, Jesus tells us, requires dying to self, highlighting and exalting Christ and serving the lost. If we want the Lord to use us in in a powerful and mighty way in this generation, then we we cannot ground our life in the common rule of this generation. And the common rule of this generation is, it's about me. And if we're gonna have any effect, to be fruitful and see God work in us and through us in might, in power, then we must put that aside. You see, a heart and a life that is centered on the self will never be centered on a gospel harvest. It will remain ineffectual. For God does not bless who? The proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And the whole length of, of Christian history exalts that that thinking. Hebrews 4, 6 says that, right? He humbles the proud, and it gives grace to the humble. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, the prophet there says, For thus the holy one, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, he says this: I dwell in the high and holy places. And we think that is indeed where God's supposed to dwell, in the high and the holy places. But where else does he dwell? In power and might. And also with him who is contrite and is lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, if you want to experience resurrection and mighty power that brings about fruitfulness in gospel ministry, then you must get low. That's the place of blessing. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, once said, God created the world out of nothing, And when I realize that I am nothing perhaps God can create something out of me too. So it is with us. As it is put elsewhere in the gospels by Jesus himself unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies it remains alone. But if it dies it does what? It bears much fruit. You must die to self. That's a gospel phrase for humility. He must increase, I must decrease. And John is willing to become nothing because he has a gospel perspective that has made him humble. And John... His disciples come to him and say, John, aren't you agitated that all of your followers are now following something else, somebody else? And John gives the perspective of a humble man. And what are the three things? What are the perspectives of a humble man? They are threefold. The first is this, this morning, in verse 27, and that is, he has the foundation of life is grace. Verse 27, the disciples appear concerned about the glory of John's name. They're perhaps envious and jealous for John's success, but John has no such issues. And he says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing, even one little thing, unless it is given to him from heaven. What's John saying here? What is the perspective in the way he views his life? He is saying, listen, all the ministry successes I've had, all of anything that I have, any provision, any good thing in life, all of it has Come as a pure gift from God. The good hand of God is the reason I have any success in ministry or any business or that my any of my kids walk with Jesus. The results are not ours, they are the Lord's. He's the one who gives, and therefore he's the one who can take away. And therefore, it means it's all of grace. Think about the parable of the laborers that Jesus talks about in one of, in one of the gospel accounts. In the parables, he talks, he gives this strange illustration. He says there's one guy who shows up and he works 12 hours, and I pay him, you know, six denarii, let's say. And then the next guy comes and he works eight hours. And in my agreement with him is I, too, have paid him six denarii. And then there's another guy who comes and only works for four hours. And he, too, gets... Six denarii. And then there's the last guy who slips in for the last half hour of work. And he too gets six denarii. What's the point of the parable? It's not about what you have done, it's all about his grace. Do you see the, the world through the goggles of fairness? Or do you see the world through the glasses of God's grace? What makes us significant and gives us an okayness in this world is not the human popularity we gain or not even the visible success, but all that we have is given to us by God and praise the Lord, he gives grace in buckets full. And the implications for us for this is twofold. For twofold. All right. I meant to put these on the screen. I didn't give these to you on the screen, but here's what they are. This, the implications of this is twofold. First, therefore, because John knows it's all of grace, his pride and jealousy and sense of competition are quieted. In other words, John goes, the church down the street that's having much more success and fruitfulness. Praise be to God. That's not that's not my responsibility. I, he, he silences. Gospel competition in his heart. Pride makes one constantly agitated, striving, frustrated. And the disciples of John assume that John is going to be upset that disciples are leaving him and going to Jesus. But John understands what Paul understood. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, in other words, it's a gift, you didn't earn it. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything good you've received in this world, whether it's financial responsibility, prosperity, or physical abilities, or, 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 or great skills, all those things were given to you by God. You didn't earn them. You, you were not born, right, in the medieval, time, in medieval ages somewhere on some side of some cliff in Mongolia. No. You have not all the things that you have have been given to you by God. For John to grow frustrated, angry, unhappy with God for taking people away from his ministry would be to act as if it was all himself that drew those people to his ministry in the first place. But he understands it is, it is God who gave him that fruit. And so instead of his perspective is that God is in control and that God's sovereign grace can give and in God's sovereign grace, he can take away. So that's one implication. Second, when you see this, therefore John displays a heart that is humbly content with the Lord's giving and the Lord's taking away. He's content. This is not bitter discontentment, bitterness that, that he has here. Instead, it's actually a, a contentedness over the Lord's will and plan for his life. Bitter discontentment reveals a heart that is about myself, but it's about my pride. And what are those things that you're discontent with the Lord about? And there are many things that we could certainly, that we want to cry out to him and say, Lord, I long for this to change. And it would be good to pray for him to change those things. You have children that aren't walking with Jesus, and you want, you want a holy discontent, not a bitter discontent. A discontent that keeps going like the widow to his feet and going, would you change my children? Would you redeem their heart and their lives? That's good. But John, though, displays that kind of discontent. Not the bitter kind that grows angry at god 's will, John is content with the portion the Lord has assigned to him, and here 's the question: Are you? Do you recognize that you live continually under a banner of grace, that it 's all of gift of God, and has that calmed and quieted you? I think a good example of this is in, in how this might actually set you free in life from a lot of your competition and your constant frustration. And the way this is manifested, I think, most often in our lives, particularly since social media brought it in and made this exponential, is this constant comparison game. Heard one pastor this week talk about a phrase that as he struggles with this idea of seeing the ministries of other pastors in, 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 in this world and in friends of his who are experiencing what he believes to be or sees greater success in ministry, he said he's contempted to compare and despair But he said he's had to learn to say this simple truism over his life. That is not your story. It's not your story. And this becomes incredibly difficult to swallow, doesn't it? When your friends that you thought weren't as good as parents as you, their kids walk with Jesus and yours don't? That's not my story. My children are struggling. I don't make as much money as I'd want to. My marriage is not as joyous as I would like, and there's not the intimacy that I long for. My church is only so-so. It's not your story. He has given you the story that he's given you. The parent who has the easier kids than others. Isn't that hard? For those of you who look around, like we have all these young parents in the room, and you've got, you find, you've got the kid who never sleeps, ever, ever, ever. And you have that parent who's like your best friend and their child came home from the hospital and hasn't woken up in three months. <laughs> and, you're, and it's not your story. It's not your story. And a perspective that understands it's all of grace, it's all a gift of God, this perspective can actually calm and quiet your soul. It will protect you from bitterness and disappointment about what you have been given, that that is not your story. And you can be grateful about what God has given you in your story. Because you didn't deserve the good things he gave you in the first place. That's what grace is about. And so a life model of he must increase and I must decrease comes from recognizing that you had nothing and he gave you everything that you have. The gospel, we had nothing. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were running from him and he saved you. He saved you. And so you make your life about him. Your eyes become about him and his grace and his mercy upon your life, what he has done for you. This is what those who are humble have right at their forefront of their foundation of their perspective in life, is look what he's done. In the annals of the Persian King Cyrus, some of you you may know the, the King Cyrus. He, he's mentioned in Isaiah. He ruled several hundred years before the birth of Christ. There's a story about a, a, a wife of a general of Cyrus's and then this wife was charged with treason and was condemned to die. And when her husband, this general, was told, he leaves the field quickly and he comes to Cyrus and he bursts into Cyrus's throne room at great threat potentially to his own life to have such audacity to burst into the throne room of the king, this emperor. And he threw himself on the floor and he cried out and he said, oh, oh Lord, take my life instead of hers. Let me die in her place. And Cyrus, by all historical accounts, who was a humane man, at least by, you know, ancient uh, dictators, standards, was touched by this offer, and he said, love like that must not be spoiled by death. And then he gave the husband and the wife back to each other, and he let the wife go free. And as they walked away, happily the husband said to his wife, did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us and when he gave you the pardon? And his wife responded this way, I had no eyes for the king. I saw only the man who was willing to die in my place. The humble heart comes from seeing the man who is willing to die in your place. It's all of grace. The grace of God gives way then, therefore, to the purpose of life, which is making much of the one who is willing to die for you. That's the second thing I want you to see. John has a humble heart because the perspective of his life is that the purpose of his life is Jesus. Verse 28, the second thing he says, You yourselves, talking to his disciples, bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And remember, John's job was to go before and say, He's coming, to point to Christ. The disciples of John say, Come on, John, everyone is going to Jesus. Doesn't that upset you? And John says, Yeah, what's your point? Because the point and purpose of my life was to get people to follow Jesus. So I'm happy as a lark. This sounds great that all of them are following Jesus. John knew his role. And he knew his role was to point to Jesus. He was not the story. He simply needed to share the story of who Jesus was. John's consuming desire was that other people would not know who he is would not be praise John, but his consuming desire was the message of Christ Jesus and that others would follow Jesus. His aim was not to to get fame and recognition for himself, but that Christ might increase so that more and more people might follow him. And it is this impetus that boils in the men and women who have a heart for God's harvest, who look at God and say, my heart longs for the world to know you, for you to be praised, for you to be honored, for you to be glorified. This flows in the beating hearts of our greatest missionaries. William Carey, who was one of the great pioneer missionaries to India, the day when he lay dying, he turned to a friend and said this, When I am gone, don't talk about William Carey, but talk only of William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but what? To your name be glory for the sake of your steadfast and your faithfulness. Is this the vision of your life? That the one who has died for you, that the world may know him. And the testimony of the scriptures is this, that the purpose, the reason why you were created is for the glory of God. Do you realize that? That's why you've been given breath today. That God, and indeed, did you know that this is God's great vision for the end of the world? This is God's vision. Why he created you, for your, his vision for your life now, tomorrow, and at the end of all things is his glory. Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7. I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. But instead, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for... My glory, whom I formed and made. And the ultimate vision of God and the ultimate hope of anyone who has seen God is that his glory would be made known to the ends of the earth. That's why it says in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's our vision. That's where it begins and that's where it ends. Is with that vision for the glory of God. The vision of life for someone whose heart is for the harvest is one who makes this their great purpose. Is that the vision and purpose of your life? Now, if it is, understand there's actually some incredible benefits that will make you a more, frankly, Ben wanted fun people. It'll make you more fun. And it'll probably make you more fruitful in ministry. Two wonderful benefits of understanding that life is your purpose of your life is to make much of Jesus. First, you find in this a humbling significance. A humbling significance. John's role was significant. He wasn't a nobody. But he decided to become nothing. What did Jesus, how did Jesus describe John? Matthew 11, verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, and if you're in the kingdom of God, you're as great if not greater than him. And in other words, John takes on this place of humility, this low place, he becomes nothing, and Jesus raises up and says, there's no one greater. There's no one greater. If you want to be impressive in the world's eyes, then look to get money and fame and accolades and followers and accomplishments. If you want to be impressive in Jesus' eyes, become nothing like John the Baptist. Humility was not desired in the ancient world. It really wasn't. We we, we like the idea of someone being humble. We don't want to be humble, but we like the idea of other people being humble. We want our leaders to be humble because who wants to follow a prideful jerk? But did you know this was actually something that was completely, it's the antithesis of what they believed in the ancient world. No one was supposed to be humble. That, That was, oh, that's like, Oh, that would be terrible to be humbled until a certain man came along who said, I am in the very form of God, but I'm going to lay down that. He says this in Philippians 2. I will lay down that and take on flesh and take on the form of a servant, a servant who's willing to even die on a cross. Humility is not something simply that Jesus preached. Humility is something that he lived, and it's something that he is. He is humble. And that means and a calling us to humility is a calling to know Jesus himself. And a calling us to humility is a calling us into fulfilling our awesome purpose in this world. That when you are part of God's kingdom purposes, that, that is greater than in you. What does the psalmist say? I'd rather be an usher in the house of God than a king here on earth. That to be small in the kingdom of God is greater than being an emperor in this world. It's humble significance. And then second, I want you to see this. This will becomes the purpose of your life. When making him be known and not yourself, it will set you free. I think Weber talked about this actually when he talked about John one in the in evangelizing, when we first looked at John's life. And A number of years ago, I heard about this um, Methodist minister who said one of the things that he almost quit ministry because he was having an incredibly difficult time. He was constantly anxious, constantly insecure. And he said what changed his life was this realization. I'm not God. That was John's realization. he, He looked at his disciples and says, hey, you yourselves testified that I said I am not the Christ. And this will set you free. And that it's not about your how good you are at sharing your faith. It's not about how knowledgeable you are about apologetics. It's not about how awkward or not awkward you are socially. Actually, you begin to be less awkward socially because you stop thinking about who? Yourself, when you walk in the room and you begin to think about other people. And suddenly, you've been set free. You're not thinking about you. You're thinking about the mission. You're thinking about what Jesus has called you to be and to do. I am not God, he is. I don't have to point to me. I point to him. That's the job. It's a simple one. So many of us do not participate in the mission because we are not those who tell others about Jesus. We are not bold and courageous because our thoughts are so, we're so self-conscious. Again, that word self. Do I have the right words? But the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the freedom of life's purpose being about making much of Jesus makes you an incredibly courageous person. John Knox you want a good reformer to name your kids after? Yeah, Calvin, you end up having connections to Calvin and Hobbes, which is really great. But then you're, everyone thinks your kid's going to be trouble. But John Knox, that's a... We like that name. Reform, us reform folks, we name our kid Knox all the time. And, and, and he, was, he, was the, he was the dude. John Knox, you guys ever heard of uh, Mary? Bloody Mary is how she was referred to. And he was a Scottish reformer. And he has actually... One day he was a counselor to the queen... Who did not like him and did not like what he had to offer, but one day he was warned to not go into her chamber because she was in one of her ugliest and angriest of moods and that she might be dangerous. And John Knox responded this way: "Why should I be afraid of the queen when I have just spent four hours on my knees before the God of the universe?" It set him free. It set him free. Because Knox had bowed so low before the king who loved him and cared for him that he could stand in any social situation. That means you can go up to the prettiest girl in your school and tell her about Jesus. That's the kind of freedom and joy that John the Baptist felt the freedom to let go of himself and to make much of Jesus. And so in seeing that we are nothing without the grace of God, that we are incredibly significant in our purpose in making much of God, there's one final place we have to get to in order to have a heart that is for the harvest and that is the purpose of making much of Jesus results in a life of joy. The joy of life, it's this. It's a wedding. The joining together of Christ in his bride, and this is the last perspective I want you to see this morning that John has. The joy of life is a wedding. John said this in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of a bridegroom who stands and hears him great, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's going on here? John is using the image here. He's saying, I'm the groomsman. Jesus is the groom. I'm the groom's friend. I'm not the center of attention. My job, though, is simply to prepare things for the groom to show up and to meet his bride. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, I'm the best man. That's my role. I'm a groomsman. And it would be utterly ridiculous to make the wedding about myself. Isn't there like those shows that talk about bridezillas? But sometimes in those shows you also see the fact that there's uh, bridesmaid zillas. And would you ever been to a wedding, a family wedding, in which there's a lot of this kind of bizarre, toxic behavior among family members and somebody in the wedding party makes the whole weekend about them. And you want to go, that's not your job. Shut up and stand there and look cute. That's your job. John the Baptist is saying that my place is always second place, but what a place to be the friend of the bridegroom. There's a star in this party, and it's not me. I'm not paying for the wedding. He is. I'm not the one marrying the bride. He is. I'll tell you what, the people who have the best time at weddings are always groomsmen, aren't they? They didn't pay for it. They don't feel any compulsion to clean up afterwards. Their job is simply to carry the groom there. That's it. That's their job, and so they have a great time. Here's here's what I want you to see, though. The joy of what we get to be involved in. That means the church, what we are about, is we are not about politics or ultimately morals, but we are about romance. The romance of Christ and his bride. The romance of God is the worthy sacrifice of our egos, and the greatest delight of our heart if you actually see what we get to be a part of. We are not giving giving up anything, but we're gaining everything to be a part of this wedding party. The eternal romance of what God is doing in this world through the gospel is that Jesus came down into the brothel of this world, and he has gathered up for him a bride. And we, so we can walk into the dark places of this world whether the brothel looks glamorous and glitzy of the rich in America or it looks like a slum in Cuba and we get to say your groom is coming and he has died for you and he has bought you for himself and so John saw himself simply as the friend of the bridegroom And so John defines success of his mission not in terms of being celebrated, but in terms of the groom meeting and marrying his bride. And so if John could help more people get to Jesus, then he says, my joy is complete. My joy is complete. Some of you like to play matchmaker. You're always scanning the room and friends of yours and single people and you're going, I want her and him to get together. And it just tickles your, it just, like, it just does something in some of you to put people together. But John is saying, that's what I get to do. I get to point people to Jesus and I get to match them to Christ, their groom. And at heart for the harvest of God comes when we stop thinking about ourselves and we simply are fully fixed on being a part of God's wedding day. In other words, our joy becomes the joy of Jesus meeting his bride. His bride, the bride of Christ, her meeting her Savior and her husband, and that's where the fullness of joy comes from. The joy of playing matchmaker, of telling other people about Jesus, not about how great you are, but how beautiful and wonderful he is. Is this the vision and purpose of your life? Is this the greatest joy and delight of your life? I was reminded of this this weekend Kate and I, over winter break, over the last couple days, we went on a, a guys' trip together. And yesterday, at the, kind of the, as the end of our guys' trip, I'm gonna, three stories, two, three stories I'm going to tell you to close this morning, about what I realized. We, we went to a Florida Gator basketball game yesterday. And so I was back on the campus where I went to school, and God, God did some incredible things in my heart while I was there. I have three profound memories that I want to share with you that connect to this. one, so the greatest joys of my life, my junior year, my second semester junior year, my father, who was also a pastor, took a sabbatical. And years and years of serving a large church, he found that he, just, he was disconnected from the lost. And so all, all he wanted to do, he, he didn't really want to write a white paper or get a doctorate. What he wanted to do was to share his faith. And so he too had also been to University of Florida. And so during my junior year, my second semester, my dad took a sabbatical up near Gainesville, Florida, and he would come on the campus, and he and I would get to go share the gospel together. What a cool experience. But my dad's experience was more profound than mine, because I remember one day we actually sat down with a Jewish man, and my dad got to share the gospel with him. And afterwards, after we kind of this encounter had finished, my dad was tearing up, and tears were coming down his face, and he says, I haven't gotten to share the gospel with a Jewish person in 30 years. The joy of his heart was to tell people about the groom. Kate asked me yesterday, he said, as we're driving on campus, and he said, what what was the place you most loved hanging out? And I couldn't think of it. I wanted to be like, well, I mean, son, there was a lot of cool days at the swamp. And, you know, but how many home games are you getting? Like, if you, four years, if you go to every home game, what do we look, 28 times? You're with your friends in the swamp, that's cool. But that's not like some place you're out every Tuesday. And it hit me yesterday in our, long, our drive back last night. The place that we walked through, he and I walked through at one point yesterday to get some food, was the Wright Student Union. And that was the place I loved the most. Because on the third floor of the Wright Student Union, in a, kind of a nameless conference room, every Sunday night, 30 to 40 college students from Campus Crusade for Christ, we would get together and we would pray for two hours over our campus. And we would shed tears over friends that we loved on that campus. And God gave me, in those times, a longing to be a part of that movement. That I came to know and love Jesus with other brothers and sisters, and go. I want to be a part of that. And then the third thing I remember, remember being back on campus yesterday was this: was the weekly meeting with Campus Crusade. And I remembered my last semester, my senior year, and there was about 500 students that would come to our weekly meeting for Campus Crusade, and it was this incredible experience of worship one night. And I, I remember I stopped. I was over on kind of a side, and I stopped singing. And I simply looked around the room and watched. And I knew in that moment, in my heart of hearts, I said, whatever it takes to be a part of people experiencing the joy in Jesus, I want part of that. And it was then that I knew. I'm not doing a finance thing. Now, you should do a finance thing if that's where God calls you to be. But I knew it was like, whatever it is, the thing that he has gifted me with the most, I want that to be used to have these people meet that Savior. Because look at the joy they have. And so I ask you this week, I knew in that moment, I felt joy. What was I finding? I was becoming nothing. There was no thought of myself. But in that, I had everything joy and delight. So I ask you, how can we cultivate this kind of humility in us? Let me just give you two things and we'll close. One, take weekly worship more seriously. Because what do we do every week? Every week we come in and we remember the grace of Jesus. We proclaim the glory of who he is and we celebrate the coming wedding feast of the Lamb. And in that you go, don't you want more people to know this, this Savior? Come in week in and take this seriously, what we do. Like John Piper would say, the, the dangerous duty of delight. Take this seriously, this idea of coming in weekly and in week out and experiencing joy. Second, you can take an opportunity this week. The thing that gave me a heart for missions and for evangelism and for the lost was getting together with a bunch of 19 and 20-year-olds who were just like me and praying for our friends. We've already had one opportunity. You see these signs around the room? Because we prayed for an hour this morning for our missionaries. You have an opportunity Wednesday night at our international dinner. Thursday, you want to come and do exactly what we used to do on Sunday night? We're going to take a prayer walk around the University of West Georgia campus. Come join us. Saturday morning, men, we have a prayer breakfast. Are these things big and bold and brash? No. Prayer is foolishness. It is becoming nothing so we might participate joyfully in the proclamation of the groom who is coming to win for himself a bride. I invite you to participate with us this week to experience the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for one like John who went before us and pointed to Jesus and showed us how it's done. But Lord, simply trying to be humble, it's usually one of those secondary things. It's one of those things that's caused by something else. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that this week we will be in awe again over your grace. That Lord, you would um, reframe our perspective and purpose of life to be about making Jesus known in the accounting office, and in the halls of West Georgia, and in Nairobi, Kenya, in all these various cities that we have missionaries. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us about him this week, that our proclamation, that you would encourage a heart that longs for the harvest because we say, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory and honor for you are the God God who is full of love and faithfulness. To your name, we lift up our praise now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.